We again this morning are in the book of Colossians, which is page 984 in your pew Bible this morning. As you know, we are walking through Paul's letters, walking through the different letters that he wrote uh, during his ministry. We start, we've been doing them chronologically, so we started at the beginning. He wrote Galatians right after, right, right after his first missionary journey, right after he had been in the Galatia area to those churches. Uh, a, a dispute rose up about circumcision, and so Paul immediately fired off a letter to the Galatian churches so that they might know that circumcision was not a requirement of salvation. And he sent that off. Not long after that, he wrote the letters to the, to the Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. He wrote a couple of different letters there to give them encouragement and instruction. He wrote then a couple of letters, a number of letters, two of which we have, to the Corinthian church. Uh, While they were having some disputes in the midst of that, while he was on his missionary journeys, uh, he wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, And then, uh, just as his third missionary journey is about to come to an end, the winter before he travels back to Jerusalem, he writes a letter to the Roman church. Uh, This is one of the first letters that we know of that he wrote to a church uh, where he had not been. He had not been to Rome before. He had not met those believers. He had not been in that church but writes the letter to the Romans declaring what the gospel is. It gives us really one of the best, uh, most profound presentations of the gospel that we have, uh, at least from Paul's writings in the New Testament, because he's sharing the very basics. He hadn't shared those things with the Roman church before, and so he writes the letter to the Romans, and then heads back to Jerusalem, hoping to travel to Rome, hoping to continue on his missionary journeys to get to Rome, but instead... Instead, gets arrested in Jerusalem, is held captive there in Caesarea for a while, and finally is sent as a prisoner to Rome. He does get to travel to Rome, but now it's under, uh, under guard, under lock and key as a prisoner. He gets sent to Rome, and then when he gets to Rome, he even has a couple of years before he actually has his trial that happens in Rome. And so it's during that time, he's on house arrest, he's living in Rome, he probably is chained up side by side with a guard that he writes these captivity letters or these prison letters that we've been looking at. Three of those letters, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians, and the letter to Philemon, those three letters were probably all carried by the same guy. Tychius was probably the one that carried those letters from Rome to their respective churches. And so those three letters are the ones that we've looked at here. We looked at Ephesians a couple of weeks ago. Last week we looked at the first part of of Colossians. We'll finish Colossians today. And then next week we'll look at, at Philemon, the letter that he writes there. These letters all travel together, and, they, and they're a little different than the other letters. The, the other letters were meant for those specific churches, for those specific places, for those specific believers. These letters have a little different flavor because Paul's writing them so that they might be shared. You'll even see that at the end of this letter to the, to the church in Colossae. He wants them to be shared. He wants them to read their letter and to share it with the churches in Laodicea and Aeropolis. And he wants the, the Coloss, Colossae church to also read the letters that he has written to Laodicea and Aeropolis. We don't have those letters. We only have this one of the three. This church to the church in Colossae is, again, another letter that Paul wrote to a place where, as far as we know, he had never been there. 
Paul had never been in, in the city of Colossae. It wasn't. We've, we've talked about some, some big cities, trade cities, Ephesus and, and Corinth and Rome. These letters that he's written before have, have gone to some pretty major places. But the village of Colossae was not a major place. It was about 100 miles inland, 100 miles east of Ephesus. It was in, it was in a river valley. And last week I even compared it to a, to a Route 66 town here in the United States. It had a major road that went through it at one time, and it was an important and vibrant town, but now there's been a new Roman road that's been about 15 miles off to the north and west, and now people don't travel through Colossae anymore, and it's a small town. It's a dying town. It's dwindling in importance and in population In fact, it's dwindling so much that not long after this letter is written, history tells us that there's an earthquake that happens in that river valley, and some of those towns, specifically Odyssea and Aeropolis, they they rebuild their cities. But Colossae doesn't. It begins to fade from existence, and they can't rebuild even after that. Colossae is is not a major town. It's not a town that Paul ever traveled through or visited, as far as we know, but it Paul's ministry definitely has fingers in the Colossae church. I told you last week we, we can read between the lines here in the book of Colossians a little bit about a man named Epaphras. Epaphras, was, his hometown was Colossae. That was his area, Aeropolis, Laodicea, Colossae. He knew those cities. He had been a part of that river valley and knew those towns. And he had spent some time in Ephesus, probably around the same time that Paul was there for those three years that Paul lived in Ephesus and had ministry in Ephesus. And Epaphras came to Ephesian, to, to Ephesus, to the Ephesian church. Paul was preaching. Uh, Ephesus heard it, and his life was changed. And he went home to Colossae. He went back to that river valley, and he began to teach the things that he had learned from Paul. And those churches, maybe even all three of those churches in Aeropolis and Laodicea, and specifically we know in Colossae, all of those churches were probably planted by Epaphras. Epaphras helps that church to grow, and and the believers begin to learn more and more and grow and help each other, until finally there's a few things that are starting to happen in the church. We don't know how widespread it was. We don't know uh, how many people, maybe it had just barely began But Epaphras begins to see some things that begin to make him question what's going to happen. Begins to make him question how the gospel is being understood and received by the people in Colossae. And so Epaphras, and again, we don't know why Epaphras ends up in Rome, but he does. We don't know if he specifically went to see Paul, if he was there on business and found out that Paul was there and and stopped in to see Paul. We, We don't know the story. What we do know is that Epaphras probably was one of those house guests that Paul had while he was under arrest in Rome. Epaphras shares with Paul. You can see that in in chapter 1. Paul talks about how Epaphras has has met with him and has shared how they're growing and how the church in Colossae is growing. And he shares, I think, positive things about the way that the gospel has taken root in the people of Colossae, how they're growing and having faith. But he also shares, Epaphras also shares with Paul that there's a few theological hiccups that are starting to happen in the church. And so Paul writes this letter 
to the, to, the church of Coloss- to, to the church in Colossae, as well as the other churches around, so that they might be able to, to refute, so that they might, may, might be able to fight the theological drift that's happening in their church and in their towns. And so he writes this letter. We, again, we don't know what Epaphras' travel plans were, but we do know he sent the letter off with, with a couple of guys, Tychius and Onesimus. And he sends off three letters, the letter to the church in Ephesus, the letter to the church in Colossae, letter to the church in, uh, or the letter to the, to the specific person in the Colossian church, Philemon, which we'll look at next week. He sends three letters, at least three letters with them. And we get the purpose statement of the letter, I think, in Colossians chapter 1, uh, in verse, starting in verse 9. This is what Paul says. This is why he's writing this letter. He wants them, he says, from the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That you might walk in a manner fully, to the manner of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Why? Why do the Colossians, why does the church in Colossae need to have full knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding, it's because they were beginning to drift from the gospel. They were being, they were being duped by some false teachings. Some people had come in to the church, and we, again, we don't know. I shared this last week. We don't know all of the false teachings. There's not a point-by-point refutation that, that Paul gives to these things that we don't know exactly what they were. We have some speculation. There's been lots of stuff that has been written by commentators and historians about what it might be. This is what we know. That something in the church was happening and people were beginning to believe that Jesus, Jesus was necessary and the heart of salvation, but it was more than Jesus. That there were some things that needed to be added on to Jesus. That Jesus was, was the focal point. Jesus was the center of it. But it was also Jesus and. Jesus plus. Jesus and a little bit more. And Paul is writing to say it's not It's not Jesus plus anything. He says that he he wants them to be full, full. That's the phrase he uses. He wants to be filled. He wants them to be full of the knowledge of his will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He says, I want you to be so filled with Jesus, to be so filled with your knowledge of Christ that counterfeit philosophies can't take root in your life. I shared last week that that's the illustration of, of, of bank tellers, that, that when they're trained, when they're trained to spot counterfeit bills, they're not given counterfeit bills to, re, to, to, to look at and, and figure out the difference. They're given real money, more and more and more of it, over and over and over, so that they're so familiar with the real thing that when something fake comes through, they're able to spot it right away. That's what Paul's doing here. He says, I want you to be so filled with knowledge. I want you to be so filled with spiritual wisdom. I want you to be so filled with spiritual understanding. I want you to be so full of Jesus that all of these other things, these Jesus plus philosophies, that they, they can't even begin to take root in your life. And he shares that with us. 
I think one of the best places he shares that with us is, is in the first chapter, in, in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. In fact, I want, I want you to look at that. It's, I don't have it set to be on the screen, but, but look at it if you can. He talks about the preeminence of Christ, and this is the way he says it. He says, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Paul, Paul's writing this letter to the Colossian believers and he's saying, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is everything Jesus is all. In fact, I, 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 when we read it last week, I put the emphasis on all. You see it over and over and over and over in that paragraph. Jesus is all. He is everything. He is the center. And if you continue on in there, if you look at, I think, verse 26 in chapter 1, he, he says, Jesus is, is all. He's everything. And the mystery of the gospel is this. Christ in you is the hope of glory. You become so filled with Jesus and your knowledge and spiritual understanding of Jesus, that's your hope and glory, that you are filled, that you are filled with Jesus. Now back to the purpose statement. He says, I want you to have knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, this is chapter 1, verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's the second part of what Paul's trying to do in this book of Colossians. He wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so he begins that journey here in chapter 3. Well, even He actually said it a little bit earlier if you look back in chapter 2. Uh, in verse 6 he says, he says, Therefore, now that you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He says, just like he did in the, in the letter to the Ephesians, if you remember, he, again, he wrote these back to back. Probably he wrote Ephesians, he probably wrote Colossians. Together he was sending them off with the same guy. The this, this same thought process is working in Paul's brain as he writes these two different letters, knowing they're going to two different places. But some of the things are, are almost identical. In fact, some of what we're going to read here in chapter 3 is some of what we saw at the end of, of the letter to the Ephesians. He wants, he wants believers to be so filled with Jesus that they then begin to walk out their faith in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. It's the way he said it in the, church, in the letter to the Ephesians as well. So he says here in chapter 3, how, how can they walk? How can the church of Colossae, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He says it here, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, you are to seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are of earth. How are you supposed to walk in a manner worthy of God? To set your mind on things above. 
How are you to do that? How are we to set our mind on things above? How are we to be, be thinking about how Jesus is the all of everything? How are we to, to set our mind on those things? Because as I mentioned as we started the service this morning, we don't naturally do that. Our minds, our hearts do not naturally turn to Jesus. We have this sinful, selfish nature inside of us that, that looks at us, not at him. And so even, even today, right now, as we come in on Sunday mornings, it is easy for us to flip through the bulletin, to look around the room, and to, and to think about the things that we need to do and the things that we have to put on our calendar and the connections that we want to make with the, with the people in the room around us. And, and our eyes turn to everything except to Jesus. We don't naturally do that. And Paul knows that. And so... When the church says, how am I supposed to set my minds on things that are above? How am I supposed to set my mind on things that are not on earth? Paul says right away in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3, this is how you are to do it. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He goes on in, chapter, in verse 5 there to say, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? How are we to live a life that sets our minds on the things above? How are we to live a life that walks in a manner worthy of the Lord? This is the way Paul says to do it. Put to death, for you have died for you have died to your old life. You have died to your old self put to death. There isn't, there isn't a stronger phrase that can be used there. Paul could not have chosen a different word, a, a, a stronger thought. Put to death, Paul says. Put to death. He doesn't say these things that, that, that are important to you, this life that you have had before you knew Jesus, this, this sinful selfishness that you have inside of you, he doesn't say, just set it aside as far as you can. Just set it out of reach. He doesn't say, set it on a shelf and look at it once in a while and remember it. He doesn't say, he doesn't say you can still fool around with it and, and trifle with it now and then. He doesn't say, just cover it up. Though there is some spiritual truth to that imagery that we are covered that our sinful nature is covered by the robes of righteousness and the blood of Jesus. Paul doesn't say those things, though. He says, put to death, for you have died, he says. The old self, the old you, the one who was before Jesus, that person must die. That part of you must die. And he goes on to share it, in, in, starting in verse 5. Put to death, he says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked while you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. He says, 
the old self, the old you, you have to put those things off. Now, you might say today, what are, what is my old self? What are the old things that I have to put off? Paul gives us a list, and I want you to notice in the list, as he lists all of these things, some of them, some of them we, we automatically understand and we see in us. Some of them we don't see in us, and we're grateful for that. But all of these things, all of these things are, are, are the idea, the feeling of things that I want, that I long for, that I, that I yearn for, that will, that will help to satisfy me. Look at them, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness. The idea that I, I long for something, I want it. That's idolatry, Paul says. And when we don't get our way, when things don't go the way that we want them to, when our plan doesn't come the way that we had hoped it would, when someone does something that we don't like, what's our response? Typically in our own human nature. He says it this way. You got to get rid of it. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, all of those things have to come out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. This whole list here in Colossians chapter 3 is I want. This whole list is about our sinful nature. This whole list is about our own selfishness. And Paul says, your selfishness, your sinfulness, your old self, it must be put to death. Your old you must die. You have to die to yourself. Sin and selfishness shows up in these things, sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetous. It shows up in this list that Paul gives us, but it shows up in so many other ways. And you've heard me say it. I oftentimes, when I talk about our sin, I talk about it in using those two words together, sin and selfishness, because that's the, uh, that's the way I think we begin to see and understand our sin, is the ways, the desires that we have to want our own way. That's our sin. And those things must be put to death, Paul says. And it's hard for us to do that. We're wired, we are born with that desire to want our own way. It's from the very beginning. It's the earliest thoughts that we have. We want our own way. And so even as we come to faith, even as we come to faith, there's still a number of times when we, when we just can't quite let that go. And we phrase it differently now. We don't talk about how we want our own way. We don't talk about our own selfishness. But we say, you know what, I, I, this is just the way I'm wired. It's just the way that I was made. It's just who I am. I have to be true to myself. You know what Paul says about yourself? It's got to be put to death. Your old self must die. He said back in chapter 1, Right after he talks about Jesus, that whole passage, the preeminence of Christ, he says this, and you, you once were alienated and you were hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds. That was your old self. But now he has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death 
in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Here in chapter three, he says it this way. He gives that whole list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil. Then he says, put away wrath, anger, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, don't lie to one another. Put off your old self with its practices. And then he says in verse 10, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. The way you were, the way you were wired, the way that you were created, the way that you were made, the way that you have this sinful, selfish desire inside of you, that has to be put to death. And instead, we put on the new self. We put on what's the image of our creator. We put on the reconciled body of the flesh of Jesus, the flesh by his death, so that we might be holy and blameless above reproach. We put on Jesus. We have to die to ourselves. Paul understood, more than anyone else maybe, Paul understood this need for, for deathly conversion. You remember, Paul, if you remember the story from Acts. Even if you weren't here as we walked through Acts, you know that story in Acts chapter 9. Paul was the leader of the one killing the church. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes and shines on him and calls him. And for three days, just like Jesus, for three days, Paul goes to Damascus. And three days later, the eyes, his eyes are opened. And he writes over and over, I was the worst. I was the foremost of all sinners. But God has made me. We have to put off the old self. We have to die to sin. We have to die to our selfishness. The old self must die. But Paul doesn't stop there. It's pretty strong. It has to die. But then he says, starting in verse 12, put on then. Here's what you are to put on. The old self has to die. But put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another as if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. So you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. He says the old self must die. But here's what you put on. You put on these things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. You bear with one another. You, you, your, your selfishness dies. But your selfless characteristics of Jesus, these selfless characteristics, those are the things that you begin to put on. You no longer are looking out for your own way. You're no longer fighting for your own desires. You're no longer trying to get it the way that you want it. Instead, you have a compassionate heart. Instead, you have kindness. Instead, you have humility where you look out for others. You have meekness. You have patience. You are bearing with one another. You are forgiving to one another. 
You throw off your old sinful selfishness and you put on these selfless characteristics. These clothes, these things that you are to put on that Paul tells us, they are for the good of others, not you. They're for the good of others. And these clothes that you put on, these robes that you put on, they are to be worn They are to be stretched, they are to be tested, they are to be tried, they are to be shined up in relationship with others. You can't build these characteristics on your own all by yourself. You cannot build a compassionate heart. You cannot show kindness. You cannot have humility or meekness or, or even patience. You cannot bear with one another in forgiveness if you aren't with other people. And so Paul says you're to put on these selfless characteristics. You're to let peace rule your heart because you were called to one body. You were called to work and live together in the midst of it. The church is called to be together. You are to die to self so that you can build one another up. In fact, if you continue on in chapter 3, that's the way he says it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When you put to death the old self, and you put on these selfless characteristics of the new self, you strengthen the body, you strengthen the church, you strengthen one another, and everything is changed. Everything is transformed. Paul closed out his letter to the Ephesians, if you remember, saying that when you begin to follow these things and when you begin to, again, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, all your relationships begin to change. That's what Paul's saying here in Colossians as well. All your relationships begin to change. He says your, your marriage relationship, it begins to change. Wives, wives are to submit to their husbands just as the Lord has called them to do, but husbands are supposed to love their wives and not be harsh with them. Children are to obey their parents, but, but mothers and fathers are not to provoke their children, not to discourage them. He goes on, bond servants to, are to obey their earthly masters. And then he goes on to say that masters are to treat their bondservants justly and fairly. Everything changes. Everything is transformed. All the relationships around us begin to look different because we've thrown off our old selfish, sinful ways and we have put on these new selfless characteristics, these new selves. We are becoming holy and dearly beloved children of God. And everything is changed. Next week as we look at the letter to, the, to Philemon, a, a specific person in the Colossae church, you'll see, even here at the end of, uh, of, of chapter four in, in verse nine, he says, he says I, I'm sending this with Tychius, and with him, in verse nine he says, I'm sending him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved fr- brother who is one of you, and I tell you everything that has taken place here. Onesimus, that's what we'll talk, he'll talk about him next week in the letter to Philemon. He was a slave who ran away. And now Paul is saying, 
everything is changed in these relationships. I'm sending Onesimus back to you because everything is different when you begin to put on the new self. And all your relationships are changed. And this master-slave relationship that you had before when he ran away, when he's saying to Philemon, it's different now. It's different now. Everything has changed. We are God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved, he says. Paul closes with some final instructions. The worship team's going to come and and lead us in just a moment. I want you just to see, though, in those final instructions, a couple of different things. First, he says, in, in verse 5, he says, if you begin to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, if you are, are God's holy and beloved, if you are showing the characteristics of Jesus in your new self, you're going to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. You're going to make the best use of your time. Your speech is always going to be gracious and seasoned with salt. The, the way that you live, he's saying, people will see it. The way that you treat each other, people are going to notice it. The way you live your life is going to be seen by outsiders outside the church too. They're going to see it, they're going to notice it, and they're going to take note of it. So be intentional about the way that you live, he says. He also, I don't have time to to read through it and make all those connections for you, but I encourage you to read even those final greetings because we've we've seen some of those people. We have talked about some of those, Mark and Barnabas and Luke. Those have all been a part of the story as we have walked through Acts, and it's encouraging to see how God is continuing to use them and work through them here. So take a moment even to look at those today. Paul couldn't be more clear about how we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We have died. We have died in our old nature. We have put to death what is earthly in us so that our life might be hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Our hope is in Jesus. He's changed us. He's made us new. Our old self is gone and our new our new self is being put on so that we might be holy and beloved children. So rejoice in that today as we stand together and worship. What reason have I to doubt? Why would I dwell in fear? future in Christ is clear. My sins have been paid in full. There's no condemnation here. I live in the good of this. My Father has brought me near. I'm leaving my fears behind me. What you complete is completely done. Whereas with Christ the victory won. What you complete.
that Paul gives in Colossians chapter 3 is this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you for coming today.